Hello and welcome to Lightmap from Sifter. My name is Gianni. Thanks for joining me on this episode. On Lightmap, we explore what it takes to make video games and interactive media, and we speak to creative teams from all around the world. It's a guide to those interesting new gameplay experiences, and every episode you get to meet new developers, artists, musicians, researchers, and more. Our guest on Lightmap is Gareth Damien Martin, the developer of Citizen Sleeper, a science fiction video game where you come up against the grinding mechanisms of capitalism in a future space setting. Uh, Gareth, thank you so much for joining us on Lightmap. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, we can't wait to hear a little bit more about some of the design decisions that you have um chosen in this game some of the influences and uh, some of the the major themes um, and also what it was like to, to work uh, on this game which I, I saw you said has over a hundred thousand uh, lines of or a hundred thousand words in there in the dialogues quite uh, an epic to read through but before that let's find out what's happening in the news on walkthrough hi I'm Kyle Paletto and I'm Gianni De Giovanni and here are the top stories this week on Walkthrough, Sifter's weekly news podcast for Sunday, 5th of May. Escape from Tarkov developers relent, allowing access to PvE mode for players who bought an all-DLC bundle, but not before saying, sorry, you're mad. Solo-developed Manor Lords and indie city builder break sales and Steam records. Take-Two shuts down studios behind Kerbal Space Program and Oli Oli World. And we wrap all the cool things announced at ID at Xbox. You can get every episode of Walkthrough for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and on our website, sifter.com.au, every Sunday. Lightmap, interesting conversations with video game creators. What is Citizen Sleeper? If people haven't come across it before, what sort of game is it? What will they be playing? So Citizen Sleeper is a tabletop inspired role-playing game where you play as a human mind uh, emulated in an artificial body trying to survive on a space station at the edge of a kind of far future capitalist society. And um, the way you do that is through each day you roll a set of dice, five dice, if you have the, the highest level of health or if you, as your health declines, less and less dice, but you roll this set of dice and then you can use those dice to decide what actions you're going to take on the station. So the game is quite open. It offers you the opportunity to choose where you work, choose where you eat, choose where you sleep, um, who you meet, uh, how you help them. But it also puts a lot of pressures on you. Uh, your body is continually declining because you're not supposed to escape from the corporation that made you. And you're having to get food to keep yourself alive as well. And also there are uh, people hunting you. There are debts to be paid. There are characters who are in their own trouble that you might want to help out. Um, and that that's kind of like a constant pressure that's that changes and shifts throughout the game as you try to fill out, uh, figure out how to build a life for yourself on this station called Erlin's Eye. Um, one of the first things that came to mind um, uh, was uh, tabletop games like Blades in the Dark, and you've got clocks in there that you need to fill to achieve um, go achieve goals. You've also uh, got drives as well, which is another um, you know motivation for your characters as well. Can you tell me about some of those tabletop or, or role playing game? influences that you've worked into systems in Citizen Sleeper? Sure. So yeah, you mentioned Blades in the Dark. Blades in the Dark is a, is a huge influence on this game. Um, I I started running Blades in the Dark games while making my previous game in Other Waters, and I kind of fell in love with the way in which the, the faction system in uh, Blades in the Dark and the clock system kind of allows you to build, a, as a GM, a city 
where there are various competing factions and characters and the player can kind of push and pull at that system. It's not a kind of fixed structure. It's something quite that feels loose and flexible. And so I, I thought about um, how I would like to adapt that into a, a game environment. But at the same time, I was very aware that previous use of um, dice rolls in games is often a, a difficult experience for players because while people are used to randomness in tabletop games and board games, people really don't like randomness in video games mostly. Um, and while there are some good examples uh, like Tharsis, which uses randomness to uh, help you or for you to really hinder you from trying to get to Mars uh, as your spaceship fails or Disco Elysium where dice rolls are kind of used to progress through things. In both those examples, you're exposed to either extreme risk um, in Tarsus's case or in Disco Elysium's case, you might try to open a door, you fail the dice roll and the door remains closed, nothing changes. Um, and neither of those feel to me like the kind of things I would do as a GM if I was, um, I wouldn't want to expose my players to a really, really random situation. And I wouldn't also want to just say to a player, well, the door doesn't open, think of something else. Um, so that was where the idea of a hand of dice came from, that each day you would get your dice kind of pre-rolled for you, and then you'd be able to assign them. Now, dice assignment in the game doesn't guarantee a success unless it's a, unless it's a six. So there's still a role, a secondary role that happens after you assign the dice. It allows the player to plan and structure their uh, their day through the game, and then in a wider sense, the, the hand of dice system is really there to try and model the experience I really wanted players to have, which is the the difficulty that perhaps we're all familiar with, but certainly in, in my past I'm very familiar with, especially working, you know, spending many years working kind of bad jobs or random jobs, is this idea of waking up in the morning and kind of figuring out how much energy do I have today, what can I get done today. Um, and, you know, especially, uh, in the sleeper's case, who's kind of living with a, a decaying body, a body that isn't theirs, then they're having to account for that. Um, and so that was the, the difficult choices and pressures I wanted to put on the player, both give them that freedom of a, a tabletop experience where, you know, you, you can say, oh, actually, I'm really interested in this, in this person who runs this bar over here. I want to go talk to them, you know, the kind of classic thing in tabletop where like players, are more interested in the person sat next to them in the tavern than they are in the quest they're supposed to be going on um, to try and allow at least a bit of that in a game structure, but then also to kind of capture these themes uh, that I wanted to explore uh, around disability and chronic illness um, and, yeah, st struggle to exist within a structure that's not supporting you. I mean, the chronic illness thing was something that came was very apparent to me as you're going along, you know, in your early well, for release, when as I was playing the game, as you start to, to play, you are really up against it. And as you move through, you, you tend to build a little bit more resources and you can get a bit more of that cadence going so that you can achieve more. Tell me a little bit more about the sort of, um, you know, thoughts around that sort of in, in inclusion in a game, because, you know, they, that system could potentially feel not fun, but how do you use it as a, a storytelling technique? Yeah, it's a, I mean, it has been a really tricky game to balance in that regard. But then again, I think balance is a little bit of a myth in games because uh, you can only really balance for one player at a time. It's, it's very hard to balance a game for uh, all the potential players that it might have. And uh, we did run a beta for this game to kind of do some testing with players and get people on board. But it didn't really give me that much information about the system because in a way I've had players that ranged from those who said the game is way too easy. I immediately you know, found a, uh, ways of exploiting the systems and other players who said I was totally overwhelmed. And then when the game kind of started to really clamp down the pressure, I, f I felt like I should just give up. And so the, the trick with that has been to, in a way, like accept these different 
experiences of the game um, and to allow those journeys to develop in different ways. So to actually open up the system a little bit um, and make it so that because in a way, like the, the, the first dice rolls in the game are so, there's no way to stop those being so influential on a player's experience. You know, if somebody on their first two cycles rolls only low level dice, which is a possibility that can happen, the game has to be able to account for that. So rather than trying to make a kind of optimum pitch at which I felt the game should be experienced, I tried to create various um, safety nets and structures that would mean that any dice rolls that the player might get, there are ways of those dice rolls being used. And even a failure could lead to interesting circumstances rather than just closing doors in front of the player's face. And so the game is constantly trying to keep things interesting, even if you're having a rough time. Um, And I think sometimes in a way, a really rough start can actually make the arc of the game um, nicer. So yeah, it, it, it has been a balance and the feedback post-release has been, again, that same mix of people saying, well, this game gets too easy too fast. And other people saying like, oh, I felt like this was perfectly balanced. And other people saying, you know, it's a kind of Goldilocks situation. So yeah, it, that's a really tricky thing, but um, I'm kind of happy with the, the range of experiences that players are getting out of that system. Do you have uh, feedback coming in, people recognising that sort of chronic illness or, you know, not having the ability and also other players, not just who haven't had that experience in their life, blessedly, um, just have no idea and and find that uh, to be a point of tension? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm unsure how much players, it's it's impossible to know whether or not players have had the experiences or not, but we've certainly had people immediately come back and say that they felt the game connected very strongly. And what I found really uh, enjoyable because the game in a way is very personal to me and comes from my own experiences, uh, struggling with mental health with, um, I'm non-binary. So with gender dysphoria and with other experiences. Um, but in a way I, when I was making the game, I didn't want to make a metaphor that just for my own life or for myself, I, I wanted to try to model the structures that I saw that I struggled with, um, in a way that respected the world building more than it treated the world building like a a thinly veiled metaphor for, for real life. And so I want it to be about what it feels like to live um, with a chronic condition or with disability or, but I also didn't want that to take over the the world building. So instead I tried to set up this mechanical structure and also this um, world building structure of the sleeper that, and then really making the game just tried to respect, tried to think about how that would feel to be a sleeper rather than thinking about how can a sleeper be something else. Um, and I think because of that, it's meant that people can bring a lot of different experiences to bear uh, on the game. And I've had people, you know, say that uh, they felt that the game was about how uh, immigrant workers, um, their bodies are kind of put at risk. Uh, by their work and they're asked to do backbreaking labor and that leads to, to the decline of their bodies more rapidly than people in in um, higher up positions in society and so which is not a, a reading that I specifically put into the game but it's it, it makes sense because I'm modeling those systems that produce the outcome in a way and so yeah that's that's been the kind of the experience really and that's been the, the really nice thing post-release is that um, people have kind of connected to it and that yeah, that is, I think, the scary thing when you make something very personal is you you kind of, you really don't want people to come back and be like, what is this about? This doesn't make any sense to, you know, this doesn't mean anything to me. It's really nice when people come back and they're like, oh, that really emotionally connected with me. It makes definitely makes you feel less alone in your experiences. So how do you feel? Is it seeing that people are picking up on these little threads that you've 
woven into this story? What does it feel like a couple of days out from release at the time that we're talking? Yeah, I mean, it's totally overwhelming. Um, yeah, I, I've been kind of, I try to read as much feedback as I can. Usually, um, I really, I do love to hear what people have to say. And also because in a way, I, I still think of myself as kind of pre-GMing the game. So it's like, well, I want to listen to my players. I want to hear if there were points where players said, actually, I feel like I should have been offered a choice here or then I, I want to try and listen to that so that I can I can adapt that in future work. And so, yeah, but that is quite overwhelming to dig through. And it, we've, got, we've got quite a lot of people over the weekend, the release weekend saying, um, you know, I started the game at 11 o'clock at night and I, I, I didn't go to bed till 4 a.m. And, um, you know, the game's heartbreaking. And I think, you know, some of the endings to the game um, were really difficult for me to write because they were incredibly... Uh, raw material for me and um you know i kind of cried writing them and it's kind of it's it's overwhelming but it's very reassuring in a way to to hear people say well they cried reading them as well you know that, that you kind of it's nice to know that that emotional structure <laughs> kind of passes through somehow to people and um because yes especially being a solo game developer it can be a very remote and and lonely experience um the people i work with don't work in the same building as me my uh, publisher is Australian. My composer is in Portland in the US, uh, and the artist who does character art, Guillaume, does uh, is in France. So I've actually never uh, met any of these people in person. So yeah, the the idea of of being able to make a connection through the game to people that I will never meet is is very powerful, and yeah, it's very important to me. I'd like to come back to that um, piece we're talking about is sort of your pre-GMing this game that they're playing. And I'm wondering, um, you know, some of the, the quest lines that you go down, um, you know, I guess I naively approached it with the best intentions and found that people were, you know, not operating on the same perspective from that. Um, tell me a little bit about um, what you wanted to, to, to achieve with those different um, stories, uh, Those some of those little threads. One of the ones I can think of is... Uh, you know, you think someone who was an enemy could potentially become an ally, and you end up giving them their weapon back, and it doesn't doesn't work out. Uh, you know, or, or you know, or you are a bit more suspicious, and you know that sort of thing. Can you tell me a little bit about those sort of threads um, that you wanted players to to stumble into, but also feel like they had enough choice in? What was that a consideration for you? Yeah, I mean, it's in a way, choice is something that's dictated by um, a very, very purely production aspects that there's, you know, I, I, this game has a hundred thousand words, as you said, and, um, I didn't expect to write that many words for this game. And that is with a, I think a, a reduced level of, of choice than I perhaps would have wanted from the beginning of the game. Um, it's incredible how much, <laughs> how much, uh, a branching choice can affect the volume of material you need to do if you want to take that choice very seriously. And so rather than provide a, a large amount of small choices, I wanted to try to make sure that the, the choices that I did offer were really well supported by the game and that they felt natural and that they, I, I didn't want to, I think there's a habit in RPGs of, of just giving players a choice anytime there's the possibility of things going one way or another, but I that, don't think that's necessarily how the world or life works. I don't. I think, especially given the way in which I'm approaching the world in this, I think so often I wanted to actually actually explore the idea that you don't have big choices available to you. That often other people are in big, in positions of power that you aren't, and so you can make small decisions, but the big decisions are not going to necessarily be in your hands. Um, so with the characters, I I really did want to engage with that idea of pre-gming the game, and because I'm 
a solo dev, I can kind of get away with some slightly crazy game development practices. So some of the characters for the game were some, a character like Emphis, for example, uh, the street food vendor at the start of the game, he was one of the first characters that I ever wrote a scene for or got character art for. Um, and I never wrote another scene for him until the last months of development. He kind of stayed for, for two years because I knew that I, I kind of had an idea of who he was and what I would say about his past and how I felt that contributed to the the, sto- the kind of stories of of, um, of difficulty and of struggling against the system, but also of coming to your, you know, not being dictated, not having your life dictated by that. Um, I knew that that's what that would be, but I just didn't know where I would deploy him. And that's kind of how I operate as a GM. I often have like a kind of, I know who the character is and um, what they're about, but I don't necessarily know when they're going to turn up until the moment arises. Um, And so a lot of the story in in Citizen Sleeper really was kind of left up until the moment when I wrote a scene. And um, the character you were talking about, Ethan, uh, who, who has this kind of, yeah, difficult arc, um, he f- kind of flip-flopped back and forth throughout development as I wrote that character and as I got the art in from Guillaume and as we worked on him. And he was a character that was originally meant to be a very cr- incredibly cruel character who um, was really just kind of the cruelest representation of a system. And then um, as I looked at the art of him, I was like, no, I see something else in here and I'm going to bring that out. And then I thought about people that I've met in my life um, and so, yeah, I, I kind of tried to respond to the the characters as they developed um, and let them influence me in a way um, and reflect back on me. What I really liked was a lot of the characters you encounter in the game feel like they're making the same difficult choices that you are in under the same situation, Ethan, as an example here. You know, as you learn more about this character, you realize that person is struggling under these same systems that are part of the world. Is that part of the intention that you were trying to mirror that experience back that everyone has got a different slice of the particular very small pie in this world yeah absolutely i think that um the characters are an opportunity to also show show different experiences and to to in a way speak about the world that we we don't get to leave erlin's eye so the characters are the only way that we get to see anything outside of this world and so yeah i thought a lot about the ways in which the people we meet affect the way we see the the, the places they come from and especially um living in London and having lived here since university and, and worked a lot of jobs here and met uh, tons of different people through those jobs. Um, yeah, I, you kind of, you build a picture of the world and the way the world works through the people you meet. And so that felt like something uh, important to the game. And yeah, absolutely. That was, that was a big part of it. Cyberpunk is, uh, you know, an, a, a genre, science fiction as well as one that you, can be used quite allegor- allegorically um, to explore the world that we're in. I'm just wondering, do you consider this a cyberpunk game? Um, and and if, if so, what sort of um, things were, you, were important to you in, when telling this story? Yeah, I mean, this is a question that has come up already a fair bit and I feel it's going to keep coming up. And it, it makes sense. It's got a cyberpunk tag on the game on Steam, but we kind of cagely use that term. I think in all honesty, I think the game is a cyberpunk game. I think it would be silly of me to to say it wasn't because the themes and the structures and the kind of, especially the focus on urban life feel very honestly cyberpunk. But one of my initial starting points for the game is um, I, I love the, the work of William Gibson and I came to his work quite uh, late. I only started reading it maybe five years ago. 
And when I read that work, I found so many qualities in it that I didn't feel cyberpunk carried forward from, you know, what was in a way some of the originating points. Um, and I feel like, you know, Blade Runner uh, kind of, I think Gibson famously kind of saw Blade Runner and thought he was totally screwed because it was, he hadn't finished Neuromancer at the time. And he thought, oh no, someone's completely taken my whole bit here. Um, but I think that, you know, Blade Runner has ended up having that influence. Um, and I think that in a way, a lot of the kind of nuance of Gibson's work, its humanity and its focus on um, people trapped within structures has kind of been lost over the years, uh, especially as from my perspective, Blade Runner kind of puts us in the, the shoes of the wrong person. And certainly my game is a kind of correction to Blade Runner in the sense that I'm I'm putting you in the shoes really of a replicant and, and exploring that. And to me, that feels much more honestly, um, I mean, well, we, we won't get into whether who who is or isn't a replicant in Blade Runner, <laughs> but, but, you know, the idea of being that character who's who's struggling rather than the kind of noirish detective who ultimately holds a, an incredible position of power and, and is the decider of who dies and who lives. To me, that's not what Gibson's characters look like. So a lot of, a lot of the process of this game was looking back at Gibson and saying, what can I bring? How can I bring this forward? And if it becomes a cyberpunk game, it becomes a cyberpunk game, but it will have been a very personal version of cyberpunk for me and, and what I get from that. And I think the other thing that I really drew from Gibson that has probably fallen out of cyberpunk because we don't really believe in it anymore is the idea that the digital is a kind of psychic space as opposed to a purely pragmatic space because Gibson was pre-internet and because, well, at the very beginning of message board systems. And he, you know, he famously said that he kind of recognized that the, um, he, you know, he was uh, very part of counterculture in the eighties and he actually ran a head shop. So I think he was very familiar with addicts and with uh, drug dependency. And he, you know, he remarked that he saw the same things in the early users of message board systems and computers. And so he kind of drew this connection um, um, between like the psychic space of uh, expanded altered states of taking drugs and also of using computers. And nowadays I think we, we kind of leave that behind because computers are something we use every day and the internet is incredibly boring and it's it's crazy to think that it would be this kind of psychedelic space. Um, but for the sleeper in the game, as, as a being that is both artificial and um, and real or both digital and physical, I realized like the, 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 the idea of a network of a cloud of, a, of the internet would be a psychic space, much like a kind of a ghost world um, that they could enter into. And so I really wanted to try and bring a little bit of this back from Gibson, this idea that maybe even if the internet seems kind of boring to us, it does represent a kind of psychic space or an emotional space that it that computers are as much connected to memory and identity and emotion as they are to you know pure silicon and information and data, which are the things we kind of associate them with. Do you feel that you know your hand as a designer in this experience that, uh, that people have had was it was it enough was it a consideration about design you know where you have to draw a line when you want to ship a game that you have to to make compromises and and certain things can't be finished but you know has it hit the right place for you based on that that feedback yeah i think so i think I, I'm, I'm happy with how the game is the game was also designed as a and as a it's a very experimental project i don't think um I kind of saw this opportunity to bring tabletop mechanics into video games in a way that I don't think I've really seen anywhere else. And I, but I also, that meant that I was a little scared to do it because I wasn't a hundred percent sure it would, it would work. I was, uh, you know, it was something I had to figure out as I went. And 
So I set myself a very tight time limit on this game and I wanted to keep it very light and uh, really engage with the themes and not kind of pad them out in any way. Um, because that's also to me how often playing a tabletop game feels. It's there's, there's not a lot of faffing around. You can leap from place to place if you need to. You can cut ahead in time, even by decades in a moment if you want to. And so I wanted to keep it feeling lightweight. And I like the idea of making a small RPG because basically nobody makes small RPGs. RPGs are associated with kind of hundreds of hours of content. So in that sense, I you know by design the project was always going to have gaps. Um, but my interest in, especially in the way that I design games is to leave a lot of gaps and to use the player as a kind of narrative engine, uh, to fill those gaps in for me, to meet me in the middle and, um, take a role in the universe. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm really happy with the, my presence in the game. I think there's a few spaces where I would love to have been able to support a broader range of choices, but I've also had quite a few people having played the game through once kind of say, Oh, I, you know, feel that they chose something which I know to not be true. They didn't choose that, that, that they couldn't have chosen otherwise. Um, but if like any good GM, I can make someone feel that they've chosen something, then that's also a success. As far as I'm concerned, I, I don't feel we, I don't believe in this version of video games where they're just a blank open slate where the, the ultimate video game is a space in which we can make any choice. Um, to me, that it's like the least interesting way that we can go. So yeah, if, if people can feel they've made a choice um, when they haven't, then that's also great. So I, yeah, I'm, I'm very happy with, with where we've ended up. Did this game ever exist in the prototyping stage as a tabletop game or has it all completely? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I, I paper prototyped this game initially with dice and it, it was an index card system. So I just, um, you could kind of imagine how it would work, but you, you kind of, I created these cards and then they had a certain number on them. And once you assigned enough points from your dice, so, you know, obviously a six is just naturally worth more than a one or whatever. So you stacked up dice on them as you rolled them each cycle uh, and you had the same declining system. And so you were kind of, then you'd take off an index card and the one below uh, would have a character or a location um, and the fun thing with that is you could kind of potentially like shuffle the cards and lay them out on the table and you'd have a different kind of different locations or different configurations. So that's something I definitely like to do um, in future. And I've already started the process of adapting. I ran a Kickstarter early in the year for adapting my first game, Middle of the Waters, into a module for Mothership, uh, the tabletop RPG system. So yeah, that's the space which really I, I'm quite excited to be in is to be somewhere between these two things and try and see if I can bring them together in ways that are meaningful for people. Um, I think there's so many people out there who would love to play tabletop games, but can't. Um, they either, you know, they don't know how, or they're not comfortable, or they don't have people to play with. Um, so I'd love for Citizen Sleeper to be an opportunity for those people to have at least a version of that experience. And then I'd also love to develop solo RPGs that would also then add on to that and, and people could then maybe have a go at running a solo RPG and then maybe, you know, eventually they'd find a group or, or maybe that's the, as far as our experience goes. So yeah, I'd like, I'd like to explore that more definitely. I would love to play this as a tabletop game. I just think it would be a lot of fun. And I just thought, you know, it would, would certainly be something that, uh, you know, would we, you know, could unfold in a myriad of different ways uh, as each, you know, player and each uh, game master decides which path they were going to take it. Um, do you want to revisit the world of Citizen Sleeper or is this story contained uh, and, and, and sits where it is? 
No, so this game is totally built as a starting point for me. Um, that's why it's kind of this lightweight testing ground of the ideas and seeing how people engage with them. And based on the, the response now, it's, yeah, I would be silly not to continue this world. So yeah, the, we, we will, I think in the very, very near future be announcing um, just the, the, our intention for that and uh, maybe a little bit of a sense of, of what we're going to do. But I think it's, I think anybody can imagine how, uh, the, the way Citizen Sleeper works is it, it's a modular system. So, um, you know, you can play any of the character arcs in any order at any time. If you, you know, you can leave one all the way till the end, um, you know, or you can completely ignore it. So I'm sure people can already imagine ways in which stories could be placed in this world. Um, and the other thing that I've loved about making Citizen Sleeper is it's so freeing to have the same mechanic to use, to, to use any interaction in the game. So, you know, I, this storytelling mechanic can be used. The idea of a clock and a dice system can be used for almost anything. And I'm I'm kind of uh, excited to challenge myself to think of other ways that I might use clocks and dice to express uh, concepts and kind of like stay stay close to the rather than trying to to burden it with more mechanics to try and see what you know how much more can I get out of these mechanics and and stretch them to tell different stories. I I wonder if you know down the track we might be talking about a sleeper based game with all the different spin offs that people might find on itch and uh, all of these systems coming out. Um, Gareth, it's been a, an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I feel like we could talk for ages and ages about uh, all these sort of things. Thank you so much for for joining us on Lightmap. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much, and yeah, thank you for excellent questions. That yeah, uh, definitely encouraging me to to think again uh, in this moment after launch. Um, Sifter is produced by Nicholas Kennedy, Fiona Bartholomew, Daniel Ang, and Adam Christou. Uh, Mitch Lowe is our senior producer, and my name is Gianni DiGiovanni. I'm the executive producer. Thanks to Omni Studio for their support of Sifter's three podcasts. You can find everything uh, that we've talked about uh, on our website, which is sifter.com.au, where you'll find other interviews uh, with creatives who work in uh, video games, in interactive media, people just doing cool stuff in, um, in interactive space and telling different sorts of stories. If you like this uh, conversation, we've got plenty more. Um, You can find it in your podcast player now along with our review podcast, which is called uh, Mainstream, and our news podcast, which is called Walkthrough. Gareth, thank you again. Appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks so much. And that's all for now. Uh, Until next time, have fun. Chris Button here from Drop Rate, Sifter's video game review podcast. Unicorn Overlord might have a strange name, but don't dismiss its tactical prowess. It uses a, a tactics mode, um, and which is similar to the Gambit system that was in Final Fantasy XII for your um, uh, your squad mates. And you can say, okay, well, you know, Hodrick, who's my legionnaire with the big shield, I want him to prioritize protecting the back row. They're going to take the most damage. If they take a physical hit, they're going to go down, but I need them to be protected. So you can get quite granular with this, and I reckon you can build some pretty wild builds that are <laughs> totally game-breaking, um, but it's kind of the fun of the tactical squad-based gameplay in Unicorn Overlord. Tune in to Drop Rate to find out why Unicorn Overlord might just be one of 2024's sleeper hits. Available now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts.